Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week it's a conversation about targeted and immunotherapy approaches to the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer with Dr. Michael Grant. Dr. Grant is an assistant professor of medicine at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Michael, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do? So I joined the faculty this past year um, after completing my hematology and oncology training at Yale. Um, Before that, I was at Duke for medical residency training. Um, And I joined faculty and I'm a busy clinician. Um, I also uh, do clinical research and I'm an educator. And uh, my practices are in Smilo Waterbury and Smilo Torrington. That's where I see patients. Um, Have a phenomenal team uh, and we provide hematology and oncology care to uh, patients in the middle of the state and in the sort of northwest portion of the state. And I have a focus on lung cancer, as you mentioned. You know, that's the focus of my clinical work and um, and my research as well. Um, and I'm originally from New York. I've lived in Connecticut now for the past four years with my wife and two kids, um, who I try to keep up with, you know, the best I can every day. And um, I'm a big listener to podcasts, so I am thrilled to be on my first podcast, and <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to join you here. All right. Well, good. So, you know, tell us a little bit about lung cancer. I mean, today we're going to focus on non-small cell lung cancer, but that also means that there is small cell lung cancer. So tell give us a bit of the landscape of what does lung cancer look like? How many patients get which different type? And patients often ask, well, is my type the good kind or the not so good kind? Is there is there a breakdown of uh, prognosis in terms of small cell versus non-small cell? Yes. So I, I think this is a great place to, to start the talk. Um, you know, lung cancer is very common. Um, there are several different types, as you mentioned, uh, and two main categories. So there's non-small cell lung cancer and there's small cell lung cancer with non-small cell being the more common type. Um, and it's roughly an 80, 20% split, maybe 85, uh, 15, um, with the predominance of non-small cell lung cancer. Um, and the category of non-small cell lung cancer can also be broken down, um, into multiple different types. The most common type uh, is the most common type of, of non-small cell lung cancer is adenocarcinoma, um, which makes up the majority. And then um, this can be associated with smoking, but it can also not be associated with smoking. Um, and it can be driven by random mutations that happen in the cancer. Um, and then the other type of non-small cell lung cancer is squamous cell carcinoma, which is um, almost always associated with a history of smoking. Um, And then the rest of it is really sort of a small percentage of other um, types of histology lung cancer. So, you know, in in other words, other subtypes, um, but they're much less frequently encountered than the ones that I mentioned. Um, The incidence of lung cancer uh, luckily is declining, and that's thought to be related to a decrease in uh, smoking in the population. 
Um, but you know, there's still too many cases that we encounter, uh, in men it's your, the incidences or the, the rate of, uh, lung cancer is probably about one in 16 men. And in women, it's about one in 17. So, you know, that, that difference used to be a lot greater. Um, but now it's sort of, you know, coming to the point where we're seeing roughly equal amounts of, uh, lung cancer cases in men and women. Um, and it's the overall, it's the second most common type of cancer in men and women. So prostate cancer, um, second to prostate cancer in men and second to breast cancer in women. Um, but I, I will sort of leave, leave this, uh, portion or part of the talk with a positive note that um, the incidence-based lung cancer mortality, there was a recent study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, a couple of years ago that noted that since 2013, there has been um, uh, an accelerated decline or a steeper drop in mortality or death associated with lung cancer over the course of the, the late 2010s or, you know, middle to late 2010s, so 2013 to 2016. Um, and this is really attributable to what I'm sure we'll talk about uh, further, you know, the novel therapies in lung cancer, including immunotherapy and targeted therapy. So um, all in all, encouraging uh, results from the, the treatments that have been developed in more recent years. Before we get to treatment, um, let's talk a little bit about prognosis. So you mentioned that lung cancer is the second leading cause of cancer in men and women after prostate cancer in men and after breast cancer in women. But am I not mistaken that lung cancer is still the leading cause of cancer-related deaths in both uh, genders? Yes, that is exactly correct. So it is the, although it's not the highest in number in men and women, it is, um, it is associated with the highest rate of mortality. Um, and that's why I think the trends that we're seeing in recent years are so important because um, it's a common type of cancer. And for it to be associated with such a, uh, a high mortality rate, especially because many lung cancers are diagnosed in an advanced stage, you know, stage four, or even stage three um, at the time of diagnosis. Um, and I think there are a lot of things that are sort of, you know, going into modifying that. One of them is uh, lung cancer screening, which has led to a little bit of a stage migration, meaning that um, lung cancer is being diagnosed at, at earlier stages when it can potentially be uh, more cure, you know, it, it's in the curative setting or in those earlier stages when the disease can be potentially cured. Um, so, but you're right that the the mortality is still something we we need to work on. And, and, you know, it's something that the, the is, is in the back of, I think everybody's mind when we're meeting at these conferences, discussing new treatment options and new approaches. And so is there a difference in terms of prognosis between the different subtypes between small cell and non-small cell between adeno and squamous? Yes. Um, you know, I think the major difference is between the non-small cell and small cell lung cancer categories. So non-small cell lung cancer, um, it, it can have a, a little bit more of a spectrum. You know, it can be indolent, meaning that the cancer cells are not spreading or growing very fast. Um, but you can get aggressive non-small cell lung cancers, which do progress fairly quickly. Um, whereas small cell lung cancer, 
tends to be a little bit more of an aggressive uh, cancer and have a different trajectory. So the prognosis of small cell lung cancer is not as good as small cell, uh, sorry, the, the prognosis of small cell lung cancer is not as good as non-small cell lung cancer. Um, and then within non-small cell lung cancer, um, you know, there's not necessarily a clear trend because with adenocarcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas, there, you know, is sort of that similar spectrum. Um, so I think the, the most important point to highlight is really the difference between non-small cell and small cell lung cancers, both of which, by the way, have, have really benefited um, and, and the prognosis, I think, is modified by recent therapy approaches that have been developed. And so you mentioned that non-small cell lung cancers tend to be, not always, but tend to be associated with smoking. Is the same true for small cell? Actually, small cell is a little bit um, even more uh, or less dichotomous. So small cell lung cancer is almost always associated with smoking. It's extraordinarily rare to have a small cell lung cancer uh, that is not associated with smoking exposure. Um, and, um, you know, this is important. I, I think really uh, a point that's been impressed on me is to question a diagnosis of small cell lung cancer if there is minimal or, you know, no, never smoking history in the patient's history. So um, I think that's a, a, another really important point that's worth highlighting. And so I think the other key uh, point that this brings us to is what you mentioned earlier about screening being one of the drivers to really lowering mortality. When we think about screening, it often will increase incidence. Um, although we haven't seen that in lung cancer, incidence is actually falling due to less smoking. But the mortality may be dropping in part because of this stage migration and the fact that the screening is offered to smokers um, and leads to both small cell and non-small cell lung cancer. So can you talk a little bit about what the screening protocols currently are, um, what the guidelines are? Yes. So you're exactly right in that the um, current screening protocols really focus on the patient's history of smoking. Um, that is that is by far uh, the most important thing that goes into our screening guidelines. And then there's age. Um, so, you know, any patient that is um, over 65 and has over 30 pack year smoking history and has quit less than 15 years ago um, in terms of you know their uh, tobacco use um, is eligible for screening programs now you know, those numbers are, are subject to change a little bit. I think the, the lung cancer, the studies that have looked at this have looked at several different populations and, um, we're still really trying to pinpoint those cutoffs to figure out what is the best chance that we will maximize the benefit of screening and minimize the, the risks of screening. Um, as you, you know, you know, about screening uh, that we have for other cancers like colorectal cancer and colonoscopies, um, breast cancer and mammographies. Um, one of the main objectives is to minimize the false positives. And, um, you know, there are many, many times that um, CAT scans in patients who have a smoking history have scars and other things. So, um, you know, that may lead to 
patient anxiety when they find out they have something on their skin or even biopsy procedures for um, what will turn out to be benign findings. And so um, the lung cancer protocols, I think, are still in the works. And we're really trying to find that sweet spot, that population that's going to have enrichment of the benefits and a minimization of uh, the risks. And then I think one other thing that's that's um, really new and important is that you know we know that certain subtypes of lung cancer, especially the genetic, um, the the genetically driven lung cancers, such as uh, a disease called EGFR mutant lung cancer, which I work on a lot. Um, we know this this uh, these mutations are enriched in certain populations, um, including patients uh, who are from East Asia or who have an East Asian heritage. And so there are some newer screening studies that are looking at these populations to, um, to you know, see if screening would increase the chances of finding these genetically driven lung cancers sooner where they could be um, amenable to surgery and or radiation. All good points. So we're going to pick up the conversation talking more about diagnosis and staging and more importantly, some of the latest advances in treatment right after we take a quick break for Medical Minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about targeted and immunotherapy approaches to the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer with my guest, Dr. Michael Grant. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 65,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year, making up about 4% of all cancers diagnosed. When detected early, however, head and neck cancers are easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. Yale Cancer Center was recently awarded grants from the National Institutes of Health to fund the Yale Head and Neck Cancer Specialized Program of Research Excellence, or SPORE, to address critical barriers to treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma due to resistance to immune, DNA damaging, and targeted therapy. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org you're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Michael Grant. We're talking about targeted and immunotherapy approaches to the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. And right before the break, Michael, you had been mentioning the differences between non-small cell and small cell lung cancer. And one of the things that you mentioned was that non-small cells tend to be a bit more indolent, but you also mentioned that lung cancer in general um, has a poor prognosis. Oftentimes, it's picked up late um, in later stages. And with screening, we're now being able to find it in earlier stages. So tell us a little bit more about how these cancers are actually picked up. So certainly, they could be found on screening CT scans, which we talked about before the break. But if somebody is either a non-smoker or um, doesn't go for screening, how are these found? So the majority of lung cancers that are found in the advanced uh, setting, um, and when I say advanced stages, um, I'm mostly talking about stage four, meaning that 
you know, the cancer has spread to organs outside of the, the chest and the lymph nodes in the chest. Um, so, you know, uh, other organs like the liver or bone, um, and, and sometimes even the brain, um, these are mostly, um, uh, so these stage four tumors are mostly found, um, based on symptoms that the patient has, um, that causes them to seek medical care. So, you know, symptoms like shortness of breath, cough, chest pain, um, are, uh, some of the main symptoms that can, uh, if the patient has a tumor that is, um, uh, large in their lungs or has a, a, a amount of lymph nodes in the chest that causes them to have symptoms, this is what they may report. Um, the other, uh, sites that I had mentioned, like the liver, the, the bones, you know, traditionally, uh, the, the reason that a patient would present if they have disease outside of the lungs is due to something like pain, um, or lab abnormalities. And, you know, I think 20%, the number may be, uh, closer to 25% of patients with lung cancer will develop brain metastases and the symptoms of, uh, brain metastases can be things like headaches, nausea, um, and any neurological deficits like vision changes, weakness, um, sensory changes. So, you know, these are some of the ways that patients may find their way to the emergency department or their primary care physician who will then order some, some more testing like, you know, imaging, um, which can detect lung cancer. But then ultimately, um, when the findings are seen on imaging, a biopsy is the gold standard to make the diagnosis. And I think the biopsies um, are uh, very important for a couple of different reasons. One is to make the diagnosis. Two is to pinpoint the exact subtype of lung cancer. Um, so non-small cell lung cancer versus small cell. Um, and then now we're really focused on um, using the biopsies for molecular testing, which is important to uh, direct the treatment of lung cancer and give a little information about the prognosis as well. Um, so these are these are some of the ways that you know patients may present initially, and then their their um, diagnostic course may sort of unravel. So, which brings us to really the the heart of the discussion in terms of targeted and immunotherapies. So, tell us a little bit more about how this field has evolved. What are the the markers that you look for, um, and what targeted and immunotherapies are available? Um, and is it really making a difference in terms of prognosis? Yes. Yeah, so this is a, this is really um, what I love to talk about. Um, you know, there uh, the all the advances in lung cancer have um, culminated into um, some really important information that we need to know to make treatment decisions for an individual patient, um, and and really to give them the best treatment that's available for their lung cancer. So um, we sort of refer to this as biomarker testing, um, but you know it's it's essentially made up of genetic testing and um, testing of the proteins on the outside of the cancer. Um, so at a minimum, patients with stage four uh, non-small cell lung cancer should have their biopsies checked for uh, certain things 
One of them is PDL1 expression, which is just an immune protein that can predict whether patients will benefit from immunotherapy. Um, and then the genetic information that's, uh, that's crucial is uh, a number of genes, um, which are EGFR, ALK, ROS1, KRAS, MET, RET, HER2, NTREC, and BRAF. Um, and these genes are important to be tested because mutations or gene alterations in all of these genes um, can predict benefit from certain targeted therapies that are available for lung cancer. It's important for patients to know this as well because the rates of biomarker testing are not perfect. Um, and, and it's really also important so that the patient understands really some fundamental things about their cancer and you know what what's in store for the future. So uh, I mentioned immunotherapies. You know, immunotherapy, the era of immunotherapy in lung cancer has been really one of the biggest and most exciting advances. Immunotherapy is um, uh, a form of treatment that harnesses the immune system to fight off the cancer. The immune system is very important in fighting cancer in general, um, and we now have drugs that can harness the immune system to detect the cancer uh, in the patient's body as something that's foreign and to fight it off. And then when I say targeted therapies, these are treatments that are specific to um, uh, one of these gene mutations in the patient's tumor, which I listed off. And you know, most of these treatments are actually oral therapies, which is unheard of, you know, if, if you practiced in the era of chemotherapy, you know, many patients come having had a family member with lung cancer who received chemotherapy because it was the only option at the time. And although chemotherapy still has a role and is useful for lung cancer, um, these other therapies are, are really, really well tolerated um, in many cases. And, um, they, they're oral. So it's, it's not necessarily something that a patient needs to come in for infusions, but can end up getting um, these treatments and fighting their cancer, you know, every day when they take their pill. I mean, certainly for patients, that must be a real boon, right? To be able to take an oral agent that presumably is less toxic. The question that I'm sure you get asked is, this is great. It's less toxic. It's more convenient. I don't need to come in hospital, but does it really work? So do we have data that these targeted therapies are just as good, if not better than chemotherapy? Absolutely. And, and, you know, over the past uh, decade or so, there have probably been about 25 drugs or so, you know, 25 to 30 drugs that have been approved for um, molecular subtypes of lung cancer. And, you know, some of these drugs are are approved for the same disease, but they're building on the success of a prior treatment. So, you know, we have now drugs for um, EGFR mutant lung cancer that have progressed from the first generation to the second generation to now the third generation. Um, and, uh, you know, with, with each generation of drugs, there's some improvements in the tolerability but also the effectiveness. Um, and so, you know, the trials that really established these drugs in these subtypes of lung cancer um, compared the drugs to the prior standards of care. And, you know, some of this was used or, or compared based on historical data. Um, and it was just very clear that 
the novel therapies that target the mutations are um, doing better for patients and making them live um, not only better with the time that they're um, on the treatment, but also live longer and improve survival. Um, so there are, yes, I mean, it's important to always understand, you know, um, how much better these drugs are compared to the prior standard of care. But what we've seen is that they're remarkably more effective and, um, again, much more tolerable. You know, many of our listeners may know of targeted therapy. Certainly, we talk about HER2 as um, a marker that we look for in breast cancer uh, that many of our, our listeners may be familiar with that, that is a targetable um, mutation. But in breast cancer, that drug is given in combination with chemotherapy very often. So in lung cancer, is it a little bit different? Can they take these as solo agents or are they combined with chemotherapy as well? Yes. So they're mostly mostly taken um, in the absence of chemotherapy. Um, and, and, you know, chemotherapy, like I mentioned, I, I hate to discard it because it, it is very effective and it can be very effective for lung cancer. Um but most of the time we are giving chemotherapy after the patient has had, um, has either, you know, had their targeted therapy and the cancer has developed resistance to it, or, um, if there's no, uh, genetic alterations that are amenable to targeted therapy. Um, but yes, the, the majority of these molecularly targeted therapies in lung cancer are actually delivered in isolation. And so how frequent is it that people will not have any of these mutations that you listed off that have um, drugs that can target them? So the, the population really matters with, for this question. Um, you know, if we're, we're talking about a population of patients that um, ha have collectively very minimal or no smoking history, then the answer is that you know, many, the majority, you know, maybe 80%, 90% of patients will have something that is found um, that can be amenable to targeted treatment. Um, but if we look at the population of patients with non-small cell lung cancer as a whole, um, you know, th these mutations are enriched for uh, non-smoking populations. So probably about 50 to 55% of um, all comers with non-small cell lung cancer will um, will not have a targetable mutation. Um, and I say, you know, targetable mutation in, in the sense that there's a genetic abnormality that's actually driving the cancer forward. Um, we talked about another uh, biomarker called PDL1 expression. And PDL1 expression is a protein that is found on the outside of the cancers that um, like I said, predicts the benefit of immunotherapy. Um, and so this is in that 55% of patients that don't have a gene alteration, this is something that can, um, uh, that can inform us about the best possible treatment for the patient. In many cases, we can uh, get away with just using immune therapy if that number of PDL1 expression on the outside of the, the tumor cells is high. And, and we define high by over 50%. And is that immunotherapy delivered also orally and is fairly well tolerated? Great question. So it is not delivered orally. The immunotherapies that we have are intravenous um, 
and are given uh, approximately every three or four weeks. But the other portion of the question, uh, the answer is yes. So the, they are tolerated um, very well. Um, you know, there are some side effects that we talk to patients about. Mostly the side effects are inflammatory or, um, you know, causing inflammation in various organs in the body. Um, but the, the amount of toxicity is much less than we see with chemotherapy. Um, about 10% or so of patients will have uh, a significant side effect from immunotherapy. But when we compare that to chemotherapy, um, it's much less because chemotherapy is usually associated with a significant side effect profile of maybe 50 to 60%. Dr. Michael Grant is an assistant professor of medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.